So I'm, I'm going to pinch some words from uh, various verses uh, from both David Bowie and Freddie Mercury, and it starts with this. Pressure, pushing down on me, pressing down on you, no man asked for. Under pressure that burns a building down, splits a family in two, puts people on the streets. It's the terror of knowing what the world is about, watching some good friends screaming, let me out. Pray tomorrow gets me higher, gets me higher. Pressure on people, people on the streets. I turned away from it all like a blind man. Sat on a fence, but it don't work. Keep coming up with love, but it's so slashed and torn. Why? 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 Love. 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 Insanity laughs under pressure. We're breaking. Can't we give ourselves one more chance? Why can't we give love one more chance? Because love's such an old-fashioned word. And love dares you to care for people, for people on the streets, for people on the edge of the night. And love dares you to change your way of caring about ourselves. This is our last dance. This is our last dance. This is ourselves under pressure. Under pressure. Under pressure. Is it on? Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr Putin. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait, it, it is on? Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I don't like it. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast, Is It On? We are recording this on the morning of Friday the 1st of December. My name is Alice Workman and I'm sitting in the BuzzFeed office in Parliament House and sitting next to me is Lang Sainty. Hi Alice. Hey it's Lang. It's always so nice to sit next to you in Canberra. Now Lang, really important question. Uh-huh. Have you left your phone outside in case ASIO is tapping it? <laughs> I don't want them listening to this podcast. Well, I've actually wrapped my phone in tinfoil, Alice. That, that's how it works, right? You just put it in tinfoil and ASIO can't get to it? I swear, in the movies, what they do is <laughs> yeah. they put their phones in the freezer and then they go and have the phone co- the conversation. Ah. Like the freezer door blocks it. Right. So it's not to do with the temperature. It's just to do with like the, the seal of the freezer door. I think it's the seal. Um, A rubber seal? Maybe, <laughs> maybe <laughs> I should call up those people that uh, – Think that they're afraid of. Oh, I shouldn't say this because maybe you'll be hotly contested. But maybe I should call up those people that are uh, allergic to Wi-Fi and they sit in those cages. Maybe they'll know. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, we, we've got a lot to get through this week. In a minute, we'll be chatting with Labor MP Linda Burney. But first, let's kick off with this week's Fast Five. And number one is Alice. It's the same-sex marriage debate. What? I know. Well, uh, you know, there's some actual news this week, which is great. It's not just, there's another week of the postal survey. <laughs> um, so as, as I'm sure all of our listeners will know, this week the same-sex marriage bill passed the Senate, which is a huge step on its way to becoming law. So on Wednesday afternoon, the Senate voted 43-12 in favour of the bill. And according to George Brandis, it's all thanks to Malcolm Turnbull. In a sense, it's what makes it all worthwhile to have the opportunity to, um, to um, give a speech like that, to be involved in the carriage of a piece of legislation which is 
will change the country very much for the better and will stand the test of time. Kieran, in 50 years or 100 years, people aren't going to be talking about you know, what, what the inflation rate was in uh, November uh, 2017. They're not going to be talking about what was the latest political intrigue. What they're going to be talking about, though, is in 2017, the government of Malcolm Turnbull, a Liberal government, did this. Big call from George Brandis there, I think. <laughs> Well, because it's like it's worth noting that uh, the Senate passed the bill on uh, Wednesday afternoon, mm-hmm. or like early, like Wednesday midday, around midday, um, and the reps weren't here to debate it, so the whole thing got put on hold for half a week while we wait for Parliament to come back. Yeah, that's right. It could have gone straight to the House, but so it thank you, Malcolm Turnbull. <laughs> um, now, forty-three votes for, twelve against, and there were seventeen senators not in the chamber. So some of those people were abstaining. Some of them were paired, meaning that you know they've paired with somebody else who can't be there and who was voting the other way. So it kind of cancels out their vote. And some of them were absent from Parliament for the day for various reasons. Now, the passage of the bill through the Senate was really interesting to watch. It took three and a half days all up to move through all of the speakers and then to debate and vote on the amendments, which, Alice, I actually thought was pretty quick. Mm, it is quite quick. Yeah. I mean, given the, given the amount of debate that this issue has had, to kind of see it go through the Senate. I mean, I certainly was expecting it to go through the day on, on Thursday and into the night. Um, and obviously Malcolm Turnbull was as well <laughs> when he cancelled Parliament. Um, but, you know, there were obviously some really striking speeches on the floor of the House. We heard before from George Brandis, you know, one part of his speech, but there was another part of his speech through the week that was very passionate and, and even very emotional. Here he is. I want to reflect for a moment on the message this will send, in particular, to young gay people, to the boy or girl who senses a difference from their friends which they find difficult to understand and impossible to deal with. In his first speech in the Parliament, my friend Tim Wilson spoke movingly of his own experience of confronting that knowledge as a tormenting fear that took an energetic 12-year-old and hollowed his confidence to eventually doubt his legitimate place in the world. How many hundreds of thousands of young Australians have known that fear? How many have lived with it, silently and alone? How many have failed to come to terms with it and been overborne by it? By passing this bill, we are saying to those vulnerable young people, there is nothing wrong with you. You are not unusual. You are not abnormal. You are just you. There is nothing to be embarrassed about. There is nothing to be ashamed of. There is nothing to hide. You are a normal person, and like every other normal person, you have a need to love. How you love is how God made you. Whom you love is for you to decide and others to respect. So that was George Brandis. Before the vote, a number of people stood up for a second short speech. Here's what Penny Wong had to say there. Mr President, laws matter. They endow rights. But they do more than this. They express our values, who we are and what we believe as a nation. I'm often asked what this law means for me and my family. This law matters to loving couples across the country. But what is more important is what it means for all of us. 
what it says to young LGBTIQ Australians, what it says to the young man struggling with who he is or the young woman who feels alone and ashamed, what it says to the children of same-sex couples who feel ostracised. It says to so many Australians, this parliament, this country, accept you for who you are. Your love is not lesser and nor are you. It says you are one of us. This day would not have come without the courage and dedication of all who have campaigned, and it would not have come without the decision of the Australian people to vote yes. And in that vote, the grace and decency of our countrymen and women shone through. And in voting yes, they have pushed our parliament to do what should be done. We may be their representatives, but in this they have been our leaders. Every day it is a great privilege to stand in this place, but there are some days which are of great moment which change our country for the better. This is such a day. And throughout this debate, Alice, Pauline Hanson was also a source of, uh, shall I say, great mirth. She, um, she told I would the, say confusion. <laughs> confusion and mirth. She told the chamber that she has gay friends right before saying that she would abstain from the vote. And it was just one of those moments where... It was you know, one of those classic, <laughs> I'm not a racist. I I have I have friends that yes. are ethnic. Yeah. Or I'm not. I'm. I, how can I be homophobic? I know a gay person. Yeah. And she said that. And I saw um Penny Wong just very briefly kind of put her head into her hands with like Maybe a little her. smile on her face. Maybe she's the one. <laughs> Maybe, Maybe Penny Wong is the gay friend. Is the gay friend. Yeah. Mm. I'm sure. Okay, so it was an interesting few days in Parliament watching all of these speeches, of course, but also, Alice, the amendments being voted on. So there was a lot of fear from the LGBTI community about, in particular, a few amendments being put by James Patterson and David Fawcett, supported by a group of largely no-voting conservative senators. There were two from George Brandis and Matthew Canavan, and also amendments from the Greens, Liberal Democrat David Lionhelm, and One Nation. But every single amendment failed. Every single one. And by a pretty large margin too. I think the the smallest margin of victory was nine votes. So, you know, we're looking at pretty pretty substantive victories here. The amendments from the Conservative group of senators were to do things like allow civil celebrants the right to turn away gay couples. And then there was this one big amendment that had really far-reaching free speech protections for people who disagree with same-sex marriage, but also with same-sex parenting, relationships, transgender people, uh, having sex outside of marriage, you name it. Whoa. Uh, this amendment also had a clause in it where people could take their kids out of school if those things were going to be mentioned in class, all of those various things that That's you disagree with. certainly not allowed. Well, you know, the Senate didn't pass it, but it, they could have. Mm. <laughs> um, so it was a very powerful block of Labor, the Greens, the Nick Xenophon team, Darren Hinch, and then a handful of government senators that was enough to win every vote against the Conservative amendments. So it was a very powerful block of Labor, the Greens, the Nick Xenophon team, Darren Hinch, and a handful of government senators that was enough to win every vote against the Conservative amendments. The government senators voting against these amendments were Simon Birmingham, Nigel Scullion, Maurice Payne, Linda Reynolds, Jane Hume, and of course, Dean Smith. And it's also worth noting that Bridget McKenzie uh, voted against the big free speech schools amendment as well, and she's quite a, a staunch opponent. A, and she's quite a staunch opponent of same-sex marriage. So the numbers were a bit different for all the other amendments, the, the Brandis, One Nation, and, and so on and so forth. But basically, what you need to know is that they all failed. In particular, David Lanhelm's amendment to allow businesses to turn away gay couples only got three votes. So. There was a lot of fear about that. It was him and that. two One Nations. Yeah, him and two One Nations. Mm. No uh, government senator voted for it and no one else voted for it, unsurprisingly. So now the bill goes down to the House of Reps where it will be debated next week. 
things to things to think about here. Obviously, there's going to be a bunch of speeches again. Lots of people in the reps are going to want to have their say. There will also be some attempts to amend the bill there. And Malcolm Turnbull has said that he will support amendments to extend the right to refuse to solemnize a same-sex wedding to civil celebrants and also one that would provide protections for charity organisations. Now, the, the charity organisations one is a bit interesting because uh, – Supporters of same-sex marriage have received legal advice that it's actually not necessary and that changing the Marriage Act won't in any way affect charities. Um, and then some people who are putting it forward have said, look, it's just a safeguard. It's just to, to make sure. So it's quite interesting that Malcolm Turnbull's thrown his support behind that. The question everyone's asking me is when will it pass? And my answer is, Alice... I don't know. It's hard to predict. <laughs> it's so it's hard to predict. Because with um, two by-elections on at the moment, the government are down one vote. Mm-hmm. So it really, like the numbers are going to be really interesting because we're just we're just not sure uh, yet how many libs are going to, to vote yes, yep. um, how many Labor people are going to vote no, what the crossbench are doing. Yep. And that'll all really impact uh, how things go. But it it will pass next week. It's just a question of... Definitely next week. Okay. But it will pass either next week or if the debate goes really long, we're mm-hmm. going to add an extra week of Parliament on. Yeah. Uh, so it could pass next week or the following week. Yeah. And remember, if it does get amended in the House, it needs to go back, back to, to the, the Senate. Senate. So there are there are lots of moving parts here. I'm very sorry that I cannot answer your question of Woo-hoo. what day is it going to pass. Yeah. But please keep DMing and asking her because I find <laughs> it really fun. All right. What's number two, Alice? <laughs> okay. Number two, Lane. It is a banking backflip. A backflip. Probably <laughs> one of Bill Shotton's worst ever zingers. Yeah. Bank flip. Yeah. And he's had some pretty bad zingers. Yeah. And I think this, this is one of this the is worst. This is real bad. Yeah. Um, Sorry, Bill. People are calling it the political <laughs> U-turn of the year. But as the Prime Minister said this week, the government's policy remains the same until it is changed. I found that very philosophical in I a like way. I like it. It's I like wise. It too. Yeah. It's wise words. Um, but, Lane, you know things are bad when the Prime Minister has to spend $75 million on a royal commission that he doesn't agree with and doesn't want. Mm-hmm. Um, even it, like, and this is the most amazing thing is there is just so much footage of the PM saying how much he doesn't want this royal commission. Yeah. Even on Tuesday, he was in Benelong um, having a press conference uh, with John Alexander, and you know the former investment banker Malcolm Turnbull said there will never be a banking royal com- commission <laughs> under his watch as PM because royal commissions are long, very expensive, and don't do anything. But by Thursday, he'd been dragged kicking and screaming into announcing one. And there are a number of reasons why. Number one, the Nationals had the numbers, they teamed up with the Greens, and they were going to force an inquiry. So they had not only signed a pact with the Greens on how this Royal Commission would run, but they also had support from Labor and One Nation. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, in the lower house at the moment, the government are two votes down. So they would have had the numbers most probably to get this commission up. And Mm -hmm. that would have been Highly embarrassing for the PM, for yep. the junior coalition partner, to mount an inquiry that he refused to do that has a lot of public support. Yeah. Um, and the second reason that the PM decided to do this is that on, on Wednesday night, uh, the chairman and the CEO of the four big banks wrote to the treasurer asking for an inquiry because they wanted to end the ongoing political uncertainty and, and restore trust in the sector. So basically the PM had two choices. One, lose control of the government and let a Nats Greens commission get up anyway or just to do it himself. So... He decided to do it himself. Here's what the PM had to say. The only way we can give all Australians a greater degree of assurance about the financial system is through a Royal Commission into misconduct into the financial services industry. Only the government can ensure that a Royal Commission is created with responsible, comprehensive terms of reference 
established with respected and capable commissioners and enough resources to do the job. Now, this will not be an open-ended commission. It's not going to put capitalism on trial, as some people in the parliament would prefer. Uh, and we will be giving it a reporting date of 12 months. Uh, this is, should not be a commission that runs forever, uh, costing many hundreds of millions of dollars, as would have been the case under some of the proposals. The terms of reference will ensure a responsible but comprehensive investigation into how financial institutions have dealt with cases of misconduct in the past. So, Lane, it'll be a 12-month Royal Commission into misconduct in the financial sector. It'll report in February 2019, but, you know, it's a Royal Commission. It actually doesn't have any power to do anything. It will just be able to hand down recommendations and the government can decide whether or not to take up those recommendations. So it won't even be able to hand down compensation to victims or, or anything like that. So over the 12 months, it will investigate misconduct in the financial sector and their employees, as well as looking into the general culture of the financial sector and the adequacy of Australian laws and regulations. It'll include the big four banks, so that's Combank, NAB, Westpac, ANZ, as well as smaller banks, wealth managers, super providers, and insurance companies. But the strangest part of this whole thing, Lane, is... Mm. Everyone is taking credit for this Royal Commission. The Greens, Labor, One Nation, the Nationals. Everyone is taking credit except for the man that called it the Prime Minister. <laughs> Turnbull it says, is the People's <laughs> Banking Commission. It is, the it is not Malcolm Turnbull. <laughs> Turnbull said on Thursday that the government's position is that it still doesn't think it's necessary to hold one, but the speculation is hurting the economy. But, Lane, worth noting, the PM said he wanted to stop the banks and financial services being used as a political football, but the commission would not put capitalism on trial, <laughs> which is very funny given former, former Liberal Prime Minister John Howard told Sky News that a royal commission into the banks would be rank socialism. Play the tape. I would be staggered if the coalition proposed a banking royal commission. That is rank socialism. Our banks demonstrated in 2009 that they were amongst the best run, the most prudentially supervised and the most well capitalised in the world. So, Lane, rank socialism now brought to you by the Turnbull government. It's, it's astonishing. And, Alice, the most astonishing thing of all is that it actually wasn't Bronwyn Bishop who said that the banking <laughs> inquiry would be rank socialism. socialism. I mean, <laughs> I can't believe Howard got in there first. <laughs> well, at least the Nationals are happy. The cynics are coming out now. Oh, the terms of reference won't be any good. They'll be too narrow. It'll be too fast. It won't achieve anything. Now, give us a bit of a break here, I think, David. The terms of reference will be put together well. Mm. I know that Barry O'Sullivan had shown his draft bill of the, uh, of the, of the uh, inquiry that he's going to put in the Senate to the Prime Minister. And Barry O'Sullivan just told me a few minutes ago he is happy with the way it's coming together. And that was worked together with the Greens... A uh, bloke you mightn't have heard of called Sam Dastyari with the Labor Party, although Sam's getting a bit of media today, and uh, with the Catter Party, etc. Barry worked with them to get it so to, you know, just bring everything together to keep it simple but to cover all base. Now, it's worth noting George Christensen lost his job as Nationals whip in the lower house over his threats to cross the floor on a banking royal commission. It really was his endgame solution. And, you know, the whole case of why potentially... There were threats that he might leave the LNP and, and, and join One Nation because one of the things he says his electorate cares most about is a banking royal commission. Now, George Christensen hardly appeared thrilled yesterday when the PM pulled the rug out from under him yep. and took all of his threats away from him. But, you know, the national senators that I spoke to this week have told me that they're keen to push this as a win for the nationals because 
it's good for their branding. Their brand is stronger than the Libs at the moment. It seems like they're more in tune with the population. They're giving the voters what they want, which is responsible government. And they say, you know, a greater focus on rural and regional needs by all parties is a positive. There's one last thing I want to say on the Banking Royal Commission. Sherry Markson in her column on Friday, she gave all the credit to Malcolm Turnbull because she said that he always ends up in alleyways about to get knifed and somehow manages to get out of it. And this is like another, like, you know, he got the um, the Ruddock inquiry for, for the same-sex marriage bill for the religious protections. And, you know, this Banking Royal Commission is another example of how he avoids getting getting killed in alleys, I guess. Um, but And so what she wrote is, it reminds me of the line from Annabelle Crabbe's quarterly essay where she wrote that Turnbull enjoys reciting a line from the Roald Dahl story, The Enormous Crocodile, quote, I've got secret plans and clever tricks. Clever tricks, indeed. Um, <laughs> but uh, the last thing I'll say is, you know, while Turnbull didn't want this Royal Commission, at mm-hmm. the very least it stops Labor and One Nation running on a policy of a Royal Commission at the next election. It does. So it puts everyone on an even platform. Lane, what is numero three? Number three is that New South Wales Labor Senator Sam Dastyari announced he was stepping down from his Labor Party leadership positions, that is opposition deputy whip in the Senate this week, and as chair of the committee examining the future of journalism and the media after two stories came out about him. Now, this is the second time Dastyari has been forced to resign from leadership positions in the party over his actions relating to Chinese donors. The two stories that led up to this point, one was an investigation by Fairfax Media about Dastyari telling wealthy Chinese donor Huang Zhangmo during a meeting at his mansion last year to leave his phone inside while they chatted outside, suggesting that his phone was being tapped by security agencies. That interaction was picked up by intelligence surveillance and leaked out to journalists. So that came out first this week. And then the second one was a follow-up from a story that came out last year. It was an audio tape of a press conference held during the federal election campaign where Dastyari stood next to Huang Zhangmo and contradicted Labor's policy on the South China Sea. Now, Dastyari had previously claimed that he had mumbled and spoken incorrectly about the policy to Chinese-speaking journalists. But here's what the tapes played on Nine News showed. Now Nine News can exclusively reveal evidence the senator defied his party's foreign policy at a press conference called only for Chinese language media in June last year. The Chinese integrity of its borders is a Rewind to the 2016 election campaign and Labor's shadow defence minister outraged Beijing by declaring Australian warships should challenge its claim over disputed islands in the South China Sea. We believe our defence force should be authorised to conduct freedom of navigation operations. That afternoon, Mr Huang rang Labor's campaign HQ and pulled a pledged $400,000 donation. The next day, Senator Dastyari joined Mr Huang at a press conference where the senator reportedly rejected the Shadow Minister's comments. But the Chinese-language media companies wouldn't release the video and the senator claims he simply fumbled an answer. I was trying to get in the Chinese media about safe schools and I took a question and gave an answer that I shouldn't have given. But Nine News now has a tape of the senator's words where he strongly asserts Beijing's line that the South China Sea falls within its borders, an argument rejected by an international court, Australia and every other country in this region. The Chinese integrity of its borders is a matter for China. Senator Dastyari then says Labor should stay out of the dispute. 
the Australian Labor Party needs to play an important role in maintaining that relationship. And the best way of maintaining that relationship is knowing when it isn't, isn't our place to be involved. Labor leaders are tired of the senator. Sam's already had one breach of judgment. This is the second breach of judgment and uh, there better not be a third one. Labor leader Bill Shorten told Dastyari on Wednesday night that the audio recording of the press conference made his positions untenable and told Dastyari to resign from his positions. Now, Dastyari told the Senate that he's never leaked national security information as he's never had any to leak. Here he is. I utterly reject any assertion that I leaked intelligence information to Mr Huang. Let me reiterate that I have never been provided intelligence information by any Australian security agency ever. I've never passed on intelligence information. I've never been in the possession of any. Okay, Alice, what's number four? Number four is a Queensland election result. There is still no result. This is feeling like New Zealand all over again. There is still no result from Queensland. They had their election last week, but the Sunshine State are holding out. The ALP is so confident of winning the state election, Anastasia Palaszczuk was today back working as Premier. But Labor still hasn't won enough seats to govern in its own right, with 12 seats still in doubt. Now, Lane... LNP leader Tim Nichols is refusing to concede the election. Here's what he had to say. This election is not yet over. The counting has swayed since Saturday night and seats uh, that people thought weren't going to be in play are clearly in play. It looks like, and it's getting harder and harder, for this Palaszczuk government to reach the 47 seats they need. And the real question for Anastasia Palaszczuk today is if she does not get to that 47-seat number, will she keep her word, will she do the right thing, and will she go into opposition and invite the LNP to attempt to form a government? That is the real question that Anastasia Palaszczuk faces, because on the 20th of November, she made it abundantly clear in reports that you all know about that neither she nor any member of her team would countenance governing in a minority government. She said there is no other way. She effectively put a gun to the head of the voters of Queensland. And the real question for Anastasia Palaszczuk is, will she keep her word? Will she do the right thing? Will she go into opposition if she does not reach the number 47? We will respect the wishes of the people of Queensland. We will respect the parliament that they elect. The question for today is, will Anastasia Palaszczuk do that as this count looks tougher and tougher for the Labor Party? But the only person I trust to call an election, the ABC's Anthony Green, of course, he's calling it for Labor. So with 82% counted on Friday morning, here is how the state is going. Labor has 46, uh, so they're one seat off a majority, but they're likely to get that 47th seat. The LNP are on 38. The Cata Party are on two. They're likely to get one more. There's one independent, one one nation, five unknown. Um, so one of those unknowns will go to Labor, one will go to Cata, one will go to the Greens, and, and we're not really sure about the other two. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting strategy by LNP leader Tim Nichols this week. Despite being quite behind, he's called on Anastasia Palaszczuk to let him be Premier if she can't get a majority because before the election she vowed to go into opposition rather than govern in a minority. But Palaszczuk said, steady on, mate. We haven't finished counting yet. I'm probably going to get to the 47 seats. Yep. Um, but... 
I was talking before about uh, the Nationals and, and the branding with the Banking Royal Commission. It's interesting to kind of have a look at how they're analysing where it all went wrong for the LNP. Some people are blaming the size of the state and suggesting that the party should split. So in New South Wales, you have the Liberals and the Nats. They come together to form a coalition but are separate parties that run on separate party platforms. In Queensland, they're the LNP and they run together as one party. And they're saying that that's problematic because the state is so big and there are so many different issues and they want to be able to differentiate themselves and be able to kind of better represent different parts of the state. And that's why they're blaming, I mean, there was a lot of speculation that One Nation would get a lot of the vote, but it looks like the preferencing didn't work out for them and they didn't run candidates in every seat. So maybe they targeted the wrong areas. But, you know, that's another reason why the LNP are saying that we should split because we could completely wipe out One Nation if the Nats were allowed to run on their separate ticket. But Attorney General George Brandis said the Queensland result has nothing to do with Malcolm Turnbull or the federal government. Nothing at all. I think the Queensland election yesterday obviously um, was an important event in the political history of Queensland, but it was very much an election that was about state issues. Um, In fact, uh, I was a little surprised that the Labor Party, um, of the Labor Party's focus. I think a few weeks ago, uh, many of us were expecting that uh, there would be an attempt by the Labor Party to introduce federal issues into this election campaign. That didn't happen. This was an election exclusively about Queensland issues. And I want to take the opportunity uh, in addressing the Queensland election of congratulating Tim Nichols on what I thought was a very, very strong campaign. But Liberal backbencher Ian McDonald doesn't agree. He publicly criticised the PM on Sky News this week because he said the PM doesn't represent northern and regional Queensland. And George Christensen, once again, wrote an apology on his Facebook page on Sunday morning saying, to Queenslanders who voted One Nation, I'm sorry we in the LNP let you down. We need to listen more, work harder, stand up more for conservative values in regional Queensland and do better to win your trust and vote. A lot of that rests with the Turnbull government, its leadership and policy direction. So it seems like the Nationals are blaming Malcolm Turnbull. Just a little bit. Mm. Just a little. So we'll be keeping an eye on Queensland and we'll hopefully get a result from them in the next few days. Now, Lane, what is number five? Alice, are you ready for the hottest weekend? Woo! Spicy! <laughs> this week, taxpayer-funded youth radio station Triple J announced it was moving the date of the hottest 100 from Australia Day to the fourth weekend in January after an online survey, a non-binding voluntary survey, <laughs> Revealed most listeners supported the move. And my God, Alice, did this kick off the culture wars. Triple J management argued that the Hottest 100 was not created as an Australia Day celebration. In fact, previously it's been held in March. So it asked its audience, the music industry and Indigenous Australians about whether changing the date was necessary and a majority of people said yes. Len, you could say that they held a non-compulsory survey. (laughs) Something you think the government would be behind. Yeah, you but could say that. I haven't seen as much outrage about Triple J since Mark Stefano tried to get Taylor Swift into the Hottest 100. <laughs> Hello, Mark Stefano in oh, London. Mark. Hello, Ooh, Mark. What a time that How was. How are you doing? <laughs> so the government actually called on the ABC board to reconsider Triple J's decision. They really came out hard on this. They said it looks like the ABC is seeking to delegitimize Australia Day and that only a small number of people have an issue with Australia Day. So here's Communications Minister Mitch Fifield. The ABC, uh, through uh, its actions, uh, is actually helping to uh, delegitimize uh, Australia Day. It is a political statement. Uh, if you're saying uh, that uh, uh, there are people who have an issue 
issue with Australia Day and you are changing your programming as a result, uh, that is a political intervention by the public broadcaster. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a, culture, it's a cultural intervention rather than a political one. Well, it, it, is, it is a political intervention. Um, now, the, the ABC if you is... you characterise it as such. The ABC is our national broadcaster, receives uh, in excess of a uh, billion dollars a year. Uh, the ABC, uh, as uh, a media organisation funded by the taxpayer, uh, should be uh, in the business of uh, helping to uh, reinforce uh, a sense of uh, cohesion and community. Uh, and if the ABC uh, finds difficulty doing that uh, on Australia Day, uh, then uh, I'm bewildered. Huge call from Mitch Feifold, a man who, when asked what his favourite song is, says... Um, September by Earth, Wind and Fire. <laughs> we also had this week um, in the Senate, James Patterson <laughs> saying that he likes EDM oh my God. and then having to explain to the Attorney General George Brandis <laughs> that it means electronic dance music. <laughs> James Patterson's never listened. And then he said, and this is what outraged me more, he yeah. said, I'm a big fan of EDM. They don't play much of it on Triple J. Have you listened to Triple J? All they do is play EDM. <laughs> I, I want less EDM on Triple J. I have someone who has never listened to Triple J. I, I couldn't possibly You're a comment. You're country person. Surely, like... I listened should... to RN when I was <laughs> a teenager. When I was 18. Teenage Lane Saint yep. waking up at six every day to listen to Frank Kelly. Yeah, James, Patterson, James Patterson's EDM is my Frank Kelly. Uh, anyway... <laughs> Let's move on. But the ABC board have backed in Triple J, saying the decision to move the date would benefit everyone and that its new Australia Day programming will include interviews with the Young Australian of the Year and cross to other activities, including Indigenous events like Yalbin. And heaps of other people support the change, including high-profile Indigenous artists who campaign for the move, like rapper Briggs from AB Original, who penned the tune about changing the date that was in the Hottest 100 last year. But I'll give the final word to Green Senator Rachel Seward. Here she is weighing in. It just shows how out of touch this government is. Triple J held a consultation process. They held a survey. They actually asked their listeners who overwhelmingly, who overwhelmingly said, Senator we McGrath. want the day, the day to hear Australia's top 100, the best 100. They want to hear that on a day that is not the 26th of January. They said very clearly that they don't want it associated with a day that causes grief and mourning to Australia's First Peoples. Right. A day that from the very start Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have articulated their opposition to. The government also conveniently forgets that the top 100 didn't start on Australia Day. So there's no history there that they are defending. They are simply on the wrong side Order, of history. Senator the date Seward. will Order, change. It's been another week of chaos and confusion in Parliament House. And, of course, you know, the main story of the week is same-sex marriage and, and the backflip on, on the Banking Royal Commission. But there are a few stories that I think haven't gotten enough attention over the last few weeks. And one of them is the Prime Minister's decision to reject the recommendation in the Uluru Statement of the Heart. It was a decision that happened in the midst of the revelations of Michaelia Cash's office tipping off the media about AFP raids. And just hours before, Barnaby Joyce and a handful of other politicians were ruled an eligible by the High Court. Noel Pearson has penned an essay about the Uluru process called Betrayal in the Monthly, which came out this week. In it, he says that Malcolm Turnbull has burned the bridge of bipartisanship and Indigenous recognition is very difficult, if not impossible. 
Linda Burney is the member for Barden, which incidentally is one of the top 10 no-voting electorates in the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's also the Shadow Minister for Human Services and a prominent Indigenous MP on the Labor side of politics. Linda, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. I wanted to ask you about, uh, you've, you've been on leave for a few weeks and while you were away, um, I wanted to ask you about the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Mm. So the Prime Minister rejected the uh, two recommendations in the report. How did you feel or how did you react when you heard the news? I was um, not completely surprised. He delivered that at about four o'clock. The old political saying of taking out the garbage. There was a whole bunch of stuff happening that day. Mm, it was the, the week of the... Uh, Michaela Cash's AFP raids came out. Um, There was also the High Court that week. And, yeah, there was a whole lot of things going on. In fact, I think it was the day the High Court delivered its decision. And it was also two days after my son's death. So I was um, not completely with it, if I can put it that way. But I, I tell you what I remember from it. I was listening to it on the radio and he actually used the same terms that Barnaby Joyce had used initially when the proposal first came out of Uluru, and that was it's creating a third chamber of the House. And I thought to myself, you know what, Malcolm, you don't believe that. You know that's not true. This is a, an advisory body uh, that has no veto powers, and I thought that that was a very unfortunate way to describe it. Well, as you said, Barnaby Joyce has suggested it would be a third tier of government. How, how would it work? What, can you run me through exactly what, mm. the, what the recommendation was? Well, the recommendation was very simple is, and it didn't have any detail around it. The recommendation was that there would be a, an Indigenous voice created to advise um, the parliament on issues to do with Indigenous people, Indigenous culture. Uh, And it wasn't much more detailed than that. So it was then uh, the expectation that through the normal parliamentary processes that the parliament or the parliamentarians would actually work out how it would be constituted, um, obviously in consultation with Indigenous people, um, and what its role would be and where it would sit. Um, Because along with that, remember, there was the recommendation for a Makarata Commission, which would look at things around things like treaty and agreement making. Um, They were the two recommendations. Um, And the submission, I understand, that was taken to the Cabinet was a joint submission between George Brandis and um, Nigel Scullion. Um, And... I understand that the Cabinet rejected the notion of a referendum to create a permanent Indigenous voice that would advise the Parliament. How would you imagine, how do you envisage it working? Would it be someone that would be appointed to the role? Would it be an independent body? How would, how do you think the concept would work? I I don't have a firm model Mm. because that's really uh, what, we were, we were hoping uh, would happen. There was a request for a joint parliamentary standing committee to be established, which is one of the most powerful committees a parliament can do, to actually work through that detail. Um, that um, is not proceeding, as I understand it as well. And that seems to me to be a great 
um, shame because that was that was the perfect mechanism and the appropriate mechanism to work out how um, the committee would be established, how it would be resourced, um, and what its role would be. Now, the simple fact is this, is the only people, person, group to blame for this not going ahead is, um, is, the, is the government. Um, and for the um, and for the cabinet to say that this would set the rights of indigenous people above the rights of other people because there's an advisory group just seems remarkable to me. I mean, there are hundreds of advisory groups, mm. um, and this would, would be another one. Uh, the prime minister, remember, does have a an advisory group of his own. I have no idea whether they had any input or they were consulted. That would be a very interesting point to um, pursue. Yeah, Noel Pearson's monthly uh, essay came out this week and it talks a bit about the behind-the-scenes process mm. and he sounds pretty... He said, he said the process was very frustrating. Well, I just, I've just literally in the last hour read, um, read Noel's essay and I know Noel very well. Um, and I think that what he encapsulates in that essay is, is pretty accurately how people feel. Um, I would say, though, that the most important attribute for a successful referendum in Australia, which you know is such a hard thing to do, has to be bipartisanship. Bipartisanship on this issue is no longer the case. I wanted to ask you about uh, the Royal Commission into mm. Dondale. That report came out yeah. a few weeks ago as well. Uh, the Prime Minister said that the report focused on territory issues, that it's an issue for the Northern Territory. Do you think that the federal government need to step in and show some leadership here? Do they need to... Well, it was their, it was their <laughs> Royal Commission. <laughs> I mean, my memory is very clear that the Prime Minister, um, to his credit, I will say... Um, on the morning after the airing of that terrible footage on the ABC, said there will be a royal commission. Now, royal commissions um, are expensive and invariably the recommendations will require uh, money to be spent, systems to be changed. I note, I note that the Northern Territory Government has accepted the recommendations, including... Uh, uh, the nature of detention centres and Dondale is going to be closed down. And it would appear to me that if it was the federal government that called, the, called for the Royal Commission, which I think was the right thing to do, then they need to be coughing up some of the money to make sure that the implementation happens. One of the enormous frustrations of Aboriginal people... Um, and people that have worked in the Aboriginal space, is you could fill library after library of the reports, of the Royal Commissions, of the, of the uh, recommendations that have been made over the years and that have been mostly um, cherry-picked by governments. Just think, if all of the recommendations, the 339 recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody, which took place in the late 80s, had been implemented, we wouldn't be having this conversation mm. today. What would, you like to, what would you like the federal government to do? In relation to Dondale? Mm. 
Uh, well, I think the federal government needs to firstly uh, respond publicly to the recommendations um, in in full, not just some of them, and then have a proper discussion with the Territory Government on how to make those recommendations live. On uh, the same-sex marriage postal survey, now your electorate is Barton, which is Good. where I was born. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, where yeah, yeah. Oh, my parents uh, live I in Bexley. I said George Hospital. <laughs> uh, oh, actually, yeah, well, uh, yeah, my parents live in Bexley, which is in Barton. Now, Barton uh, returned a no vote in the postal survey. They did. 56.4%. Now, your... You've campaigned for, for the yes camp, obviously. Uh, I take it you're still voting yes, even though the electorate voted no? Um, I have made it very clear on this very same day that the, um, uh, that the results were read out. I was in um, the park in Sydney along with thousands and thousands and thousands of very happy people uh, to, uh, to hear that wonderful news. And the first post we put up was that um, I respect the views of people that voted no. Um, many of those people I would know very well and um, they have every right to vote the way in which they did. Um, however, um, I would be continuing to um, vote yes when we do get that chance next week. So um, why do you think the electorate had such a big no vote? Um, well, you, I've given that a lot of thought and we campaign quite actively um, mm. for, um, for the yes vote. Um, and I just want to say that the people of Barton are going to judge me on the way that I represent them in education, in health. They mm. know that I have been a campaigner all my life for social justice, for migration issues and... I am very, very respected in Barton and people will understand, I, I also believe, that a conscience vote is a very rare thing in Parliament and you vote on the basis of what's in your heart and what's, what you believe to be the right thing and they all respect that and that's what I will do. Why was there such a big no vote? Um, well, it wasn't the biggest, but it was uh, within the top 10 no votes across the country. Um, and I, I don't know if you saw it, but some of the disgusting material mm -hmm. that was put yeah. out early in the campaign in Barton, because we had local government elections at the same time, in Arabic and in Chinese, uh, were just scandalous, mm. absolutely scandalous. And I think there are a lot of people that were given um, that kind of scandalous information that was wrong um, and it scared people. Um, it is also a, um, and I've seen this debate, it is also an electorate, as you know, with, um, with a high multicultural basis, uh, very high, very, very significant Chinese community, significant Muslim community, significant Greek community. But I don't put that down to why there was um, the vote that we got. People may say, well, that's part of the reason. But, um, but it's also, um, in many ways, uh, uh, um, sections of the Barton electorate are, are conservative and they have made their voices heard um, and it will not change my vote. Mm. 
um, because it is what I believe to be the right thing. And over the course of time, um, we'll have those discussions and people will judge me because I'm a good local member and I believe in them. And that's what's important. Do you think that uh, yourself and the other uh, Labor electorates that return no votes, is it now, I guess, your job to explain to the electorate how the process is it, is? is it your job to kind of communicate with them as to, and change their minds maybe I now that, now that uh, same-sex marriage will hopefully be legalised by the end of the year? I don't believe it's my job to change their minds, but I do believe I have a responsibility to be clear on why I've made the decisions I've made and the way that I'm going to vote. I think I do have a responsibility to to explain that, you know, this is about fairness, it's about equality, um, you know, it's about, uh, it's about the way that I was raised and what to believe in, um, but it is also most importantly, um, it is most importantly respecting people that um, may have a different view or a different way of life. And an electorate like Barton, with such a spread of multiculturalism and differences, I think that message will resonate. Now, you were a member of the Anti-Discrimination Board. I was. What do you think about the Philip Ruddock-led investigation into <laughs> religious freedoms? Well, if the vote is next week, as we are anticipating, mm -hmm. and... Philip Ruddock's investigation into religious freedoms is going to be delivered sometime in the new year. What, what's the point? Does it mean that we're going to go back and change the legislation? Or um, I don't understand the timing. I understand the politics. Mm. Um, and uh, that's pretty clear. Um, and obviously it's about internal party disagree disagreements. Uh, but I have a very deep understanding of the Anti-Discrimination Act in New South Wales. I was responsible for administering it for five years. And I think that the present bill um, that we are going to be debating, oh, that is being debated now in the, in the Senate and we will be voting on next week, um, has built into it carefully uh, the freedoms that are necessary. Now, the name of the podcast is Is It On? So... <laughs> It is obligatory now for me. I mean, it's an interesting time to be asking. It is. Uh, given the – we've got some spill rumours happening in this building this week. Uh, you know, there was heavy speculation that the reason that your house isn't sitting is because Malcolm Turnbull feared going to a party room meeting. Uh, so, Linda Burney, what do you think? Is it on? Well, uh, I, I – I think there's something on. <laughs> there's definitely something afoot. Um, I don't exactly know um, who or what or when, but you cannot tell me that there is um, lots of love this Christmas in the Coalition Party Room. Well, there are Christmas... It is Christmas party <laughs> season, and uh, I will be interested to see what and it's the... killing season. Well, I think it's always killing season. I th is that what we've decided, I think? <laughs> Linda Burney, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. I like the woman. I like the woman. I like the woman. Fun fact, Lane. Linda Burney, former 
New South Wales politician, former deputy of the Labor Party in New South Wales, was elected to New South Wales Parliament on the same day as Christina Keneally. Now, obviously, KK is running for the federal seat of Benelong and Linda Burney already has a federal seat, so... What a funny, strange coincidence. It is a bit of a coincidence. Now, that's all we've got time for on the podcast this week, but I wanted to just play one bit of audio before we go in in the wake of not having having bin juice. This is Liberal MP Nicole Flint. She went on Peter Credlin's Sky News show um, this week and she was talking about the research she's done into the lack of female representation in politics. Well, Peter, I think one of the most shocking statistics that I came across fairly late in the process of doing my work with Nick Cater at the Menzies Research Centre on women's representation in Parliament in the Liberal Party was the fact that here in my home state of South Australia, which was the first place in the nation to give women the vote, the Liberal Party's only elected 11 women to federal parliament uh, since 1901. I'm only the sixth House of Representatives woman to be elected and we've only had five female Liberal senators from South Australia. So that's quite a stunning statistic. It's mirrored across the nation. New South Wales and Victoria have managed 15 federal Liberal women each and we need to do better. And we need to do better for our party. So, Lane, what she said was pretty shocking. In South Australia, the Liberal Party has only ever elected 11 women to federal government since 1901. 11. Oh, my God. Isn't that a shocking stat? That is, yeah, that's that's terrible. That's, yeah. that's a disgrace. It is really disgraceful. And I've talked about in <laughs> Let's the... Let's be honest. I've talked in the past about the how the, at the last election the, the LNP went down with their female quotas and, and the Labor parties went up. But, you know, there, the UN has this um, this marker which is around 30% of, of the amount of women you need for them to actually make a change in government. And we're hovering dangerously close to that. Mm. And to see that there are some other countries around the world, you know, that you think of as third world countries that have more women than we do. And with women dropping like flies out of Malcolm Turnbull's cabinet and him not replacing them or him replacing them with men, more importantly, I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Okay, well, that's kind of it, Lane. I want to say thank you. You've been working very hard. Thanks, Alice. Another great week on the podcast. You've been working very hard too. Now, next week could be the last week of Parliament or it could be the second last week of Parliament. Yes. But um, we will be back here live from Parliament House next week. Um, well, live with our pre-recorded podcast. Yeah. We will be recording it live and you will listen to it later. Isn't yes. that how it works? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> I want to say a big thank you to our producer, Nicholas Ray, Josh Taylor, Nicola Harvey, Richard James, Peter Holmes and the whole pod team at BuzzFeed Australia. I want to say a big thank you to Rode Microphones for supporting the podcast. You can go to buzzfeed.com slash is it on or subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcasting app and leave a rating and a review. But you can at us on Twitter. I'm at Workman Alice. Yep. She's at Lane Sainty. I uh, had a few questions last week. I didn't explain properly what a spill to an empty seat was. Mm. And I think that we clarified that. Yeah, no, I saw you clarify that on Twitter. Well done. Thank you. Congratulations please on send me. keeping up with your menchies. Please send me. Please send me. <laughs> I, very, I do. I do. I do. I, I read them. Yeah. Well, Alice, hit us up on Twitter. And this week, there's a lot, lot of... A lot of rumour around, a lot of chaos around. Do you mm. think it's on? Look, you know what? I think the banking backflip shows it's more on than it's not on. Okay. Because he did it for a reason and yeah. that was because he's worried ultimately about his tenure. Yeah. The on um, column is higher than the, the not on column Yes, at this if, if it was a um, a pie chart, yes. uh, the, the it's on would be bigger 
piece, then it's not on. Okay. Uh, that was horrible. I apologize for that. <laughs> um, but but also worth noting, there is a by-election this Saturday in New England. Barnaby Joyce is a firm favorite to win his seat back, but that doesn't mean he'll be in Parliament next week. It, he has to get re-sworn in and, and the writs have to be returned. So he won't be back until next year. But after a, another horrible week of polling and you know, some kind of half wins with same-sex marriage and the Royal Commission, Malcolm Turnbull kind of needs the boost of having his deputy PM back. But also worth noting, Lane, Tuesday is the paperwork deadline for politicians to submit their citizenship papers. So who knows, Lane, by this podcast next week, we could be having some more by-elections. We could. By-elections, by-elections. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice song, Alice. <laughs> Well, let's see how New England goes. And then Ben along. It's a really busy end of the year. Woohoo! All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. See you later. Thanks, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.